Okay, we are week 10 into our series on the Beatitudes. This, actually today, is the final Beatitude. We made it all the way through, everybody. Congratulations. Um, we do have one more week in the series next week, but this is the final one of the Beatitudes. And uh, I have so been enjoying this. If, if, you're, if you're just tuning in, <laughs> uh, what we've been talking about is that... Uh, we're all on a spectrum of addiction uh, because we all run to things that almost satisfy us very instinctively uh, to ease the anxiety that we all feel so often in life. And what Jesus is saying uh, in his big intro speech is that there's actually a different kingdom, a different um, existence, a different society to belong to where all of our needs are taken care of, where our, we're satisfied relationally, and we're offered a journey, we're offered to participate in life with faith and with love as a solution to our anxiety instead of things that almost satisfy. And so Jesus is making some radical claims here with, this beatitude, with these beatitudes of going, here's a path into freedom from all the things that we're addicted to that almost work. And he's saying something very profound. He's saying, my kingdom is what you are designed for and it's where you belong. You don't need to be addicted to anything because you have me and you have each other and it's what you were designed for. And it's a very beautiful picture that he's painting. And today is going to be great because uh, what I want to do is I want to remind you of, of last week a little bit because this is a, uh, this particular, um, this particular uh, beatitude is the only one that repeats itself a little bit. Every single one up, up till now has been unique, but this one repeats. And so I'm going to remind you, Matthew 5.10, you can put it up there. This, is, uh, this was last week. It said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's the thought that I was left with. I so enjoyed last week's sermon. But here's the thought that I was left with. Maybe you felt this too. Was, uh, how do you know that you're the righteous one in that situation? If you're being persecuted for doing good, how do you know that you're the good guy? This is what I was, I've been thinking about this all week. Uh, the way I see it is that everybody in every conflict, both sides seem to be wanting to do good. I mean, I haven't met very many Disney villains who are just out to do bad things recently. And most people are going, this is the best possible thing I can think to do. And you think of any conflict or anything that you see on the news, I'm sure, I mean, obviously I'm painting with very broad strokes here, but everybody's pretty sure they're doing the right thing. Everybody's pretty sure that they're the righteous one. <laughs> That's why we get into conflicts. And so I have been realizing that it's quite a thing to start saying there's actually, there's actually a way. There's actually one right way. There's actually one way to be righteous. It's pretty extreme to say that. Because mostly, everybody's just trying to do what what's they see as righteous. And in scripture... Chaos, like the epitome of chaotic evil, is summed up at the end of the book of Judges. It's summed up with the idea that everyone was just doing what they thought was right. That's the definition of chaos. And if you really want to dig into it, like at the end of Judges, it's trying to paint a picture of what hell is like. Just everybody doing what they think is best. You can imagine the conflict that happens. So wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if there was an ultimate uh, an ultimate way in which we could know what actual good is. 
If there was, if there was a place to go and know, that's the, that's the capital T truth, that's the capital G good and the capital R righteousness. There it is. We know what it is. That'd be a really handy reference point for society, wouldn't it? That'd be nice. We all could stop arguing about what we think is righteous and good, and we could have a third party to consult. It's kind of, it's kind of a simple and good idea. So, uh, the title of today's sermon is Allegiance versus Agreement. And what we're going to get into today is the idea behind what Jesus is talking about here in the Beatitudes is we're actually called to become his ally. We're actually allying ourselves to Jesus. We're joining his kingdom. We're joining his camp, his party, his, the thing that he's doing. We're not just simply agreeing with him. Okay, and this is what we're going to look at today. Uh, verse 11 and 12 here, coming after the Matthew 5, 10, the one we just read. They reiterate this, this first point, and then they crank it up a notch in a few ways that I think are really interesting. And um, I'm excited to talk about them with you. So you could put that up there, Matthew 5, 11 to 12. So we already read, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That was last week. And continuing in verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all, kind of, all kinds of evil against you. You see the repetition from last time. It's, it's three words for persecution now, but it's still kind of the same thought. Because of me. There's a new, there's a new, th- new thing. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who are before you. So, we have these words, persecution, insult, misunderstanding. And I have to, because this verse repeats, I have to repeat a little bit of last week. So let me, let me say a little bit about what happened last week. Because uh, it's kind of the same idea. We talked about how addiction is motivated by the avoidance of suffering. Okay? If there's an addiction in your life or something you go to, I, can, I would put money on the fact that why you're running to that is that there is some kind of terrible feeling inside that you're trying to avoid. Something that I don't enjoy feeling lonely. And there's all kinds of short-term fixes I can make. You think about addictions in terms of lust or pornography, things like that. There's short-term remedies to loneliness and not feeling loved. Actually, it's a solution. It's a solution to loneliness. Uh, Of course, it's fraught with other issues. But in the moment... Uh, an addiction to something like that is the avoidance of the suffering that loneliness produces. And loneliness can be quite a space to be in. And so uh, we have this idea that addictions become these short-term solutions for really legitimate suffering feelings that happen. And then the Beatitudes come along and say something really interesting. They say, hey, suffer. Hey, be persecuted. That's the, the, we talked about this last week, is that actually the invitation is to, is to suffer. Now, we have to be careful because what the Beatitudes are not saying is that suffering itself is what saves you, okay? What the Beatitudes are not saying is that we have to go experience pain for the sake of it. A fancy term would be like self-flagellation, where we whip ourselves to make ourselves feel worse so that we kind of beat the evil out of us by suffering and never enjoying anything and making sure that we really feel lots of pain, okay? Uh, There's nothing 
there's no saving power in pain. But another fancy term is called asceticism. It's a thing that's happened in the church a lot throughout history, is that the church has gone, okay, avoid all indulgences, all pleasures, anything good, and we will beat ourselves over the head with, you know, sad, <laughs> a sad existence with no life or color or flavor or fatty foods in it. And, and then we will rid ourselves of evil because they took the verse that says those who suffer in the body are done with sin and they maybe didn't do their homework quite as much and drew a bit too much of an equal sign between those two things and said, oh, suffering is what saves me. Okay, that is not what the Beatitudes are talking about. It's talking about something else. What, what kind of suffering is it talking about? It's talking about the persecution and suffering that comes from doing good. It, that comes from doing good. Now, this is important to know. The righteousness that's being talked about in the Beatitudes is actually trying to push back the darkness. Like it's on the offense. Okay? It's trying to end all suffering ultimately. It's trying to push back all that is evil. It's on the offense. It's moving forward. Okay? If you've been to the Bible Explained seminar, it's the purple arrow. Just some of you are like, oh, got it. It's the direction the kingdom is going. Okay? And there's nothing we can really do about that. <laughs> Jesus has said his kingdom is advancing and one day he will end all the pain. and He will be in charge again. And so that's happening. Okay, so righteousness, the kingdom of heaven is on the offense. <laughs> it's on the offense. That's good news. Uh, here's the lie that I wish I could believe and so often do, is that there's such a thing as a neutral position. There's such a thing as a standstill option where I don't actually, I'm not, I'm not on the charge. <laughs> you know, I'm not on the charge for the kingdom. But I'm also not going to like do really, really evil things because of course not. But both are bad to me. Both would be costly. Obviously, a sin of, you know, obviously sins and depravity and all these terrible things are, I would never do stuff like that because that would make my life worse. Also, being on the offense for the kingdom of heaven would also make my life a lot worse <laughs> because I would start to get persecuted for things. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But the truth is, is that when, when scripture talks about this, there's just two directions we face. There's only two directions to face. We face toward Jesus or we face away. There aren't, there aren't like, the two kingdoms aren't the good guys and the bad guys and then there's the neutral Switzerland. You know, it's not Axis and allies in Switzerland. Okay, and I'd like to think that's true because we could just opt out of stuff. We could just opt out of anything we don't feel like doing. It would be really handy if there was Switzerland. But scripturally speaking, the two kingdoms are Jesus's kingdom and everybody else's. There's really only two. And so we're faced in one of two directions. Here's the lie I like to believe is that I can just be neutral, but really that's a very clever disguise for pointing away from him and it's a self-centered orientation. And I find, and maybe you can resonate with me, that my neutrality is the perfect breeding ground for addictions. Because I'm, not, I'm still in charge of my life. And my neutrality is up to me. And I find that there's all kinds of amazing sins and addictions and things that ease the pain that comes with me being in charge of my life that starts to creep in. Now, maybe nobody knows and maybe they're very subtle, but at the end of the day, I'm faced in that direction. 
when we're righteous, we actually end up facing opposition. And here's why. We said this last week, but persecution, that's being talked about here anyways, is <laughs> it's the natural result of promoting the kingdom of heaven because by definition, you offend every other kingdom. So if you're walking in this way and going, Jesus is in charge, the, the natural repercussion of that decision is what you just said, is that everybody else's kingdom, including your own, is subservient to that one. And so you would see how being on the offense for what Jesus is saying, saying, I'm, I'm actually in charge and I get to decide what you know, I get to decide what love is. Like that question I posed to you earlier, like wouldn't it be great if there was a reference point? Jesus is like, yeah, I'm, I'm the reference point. And so we go, oh, okay. And we start following him. And then in your own heart and sometimes in the people around you, people will go, but that means, but, but that, if that's true, then I'm not in charge. And, and it starts to, I mean, it's on the offense, and the word offense is the word offense for lots of reasons. So here's what I've been wrestling with these days, especially over this service and in, and in my life in general, is that uh, um, I feel like I'm in a spot right now where I'm having to choose sides. I'll just, I'll just, I'm speaking personally. And... I have been realizing how attractive and pervasive neutrality has become in my life. And there just isn't that, especially when you talk to, anyway. I, like, there's just two, there's, there's only two things going on. And it's really awkward, in our Canadian context especially, to go, I think there's a right answer to life, and it isn't me. That is just, like you start to walk in a life of a disciple and all of a sudden you realize you're starting to say that. And you're like, I think I'm saying, like if me following, I think I'm saying that only he's right and good. You start following a little further and it's like, wow, that's, that's insane. And you just gotta keep going and be like, am I, do I really think that? And it starts to grip you that there's two kingdoms. Oh, that's so uncomfortable. So uh, I'll, put, I'll put up uh, a little quote from a commentary that I, that I found during my study for this. It's from the Holman commentary. It says this. Jesus, Jesus wished to highlight this final beatitude by expanding on it in a way that he did with none of the other seven. Being persecuted by a king's enemies was one of the most significant marks of a loyal servant. He gave special hope and courage to those whose righteousness is of such tenacity and brilliance that the enemies of the kingdom are moved to snuff it out. And this is what Jesus is doing here in this moment. He's going, hey, it's actually super tough. And I'm going to encourage you and bolster you because when you declare me as king, the world, just like it did on me, Jesus speaking, will begin to turn on you a little bit. Because the implications of you enthroning Jesus in your life as ultimate have dramatic implications on everybody else. <laughs> it really does. And everybody kind of goes, like, like, you think he's actually in charge? Like, you think he's actually the reference point? That's freaky. It's freaky personally, and it's freaky for everybody around you when you start living like that. So, 
here's the, here's the tension point. You can leave up the Bible verse if you don't mind, just so we have it up there. Back to the slide four there. Here's the tension point. This is what I've been thinking about for this whole series, is men, he slash we better be right. <laughs> I'll just be honest with you. Like, wow, he better be right. And we better be right in following him because the implications of what we're saying are drastic. And they really matter to your relationships. They matter to the people around you. I'm just, I mean, it's my flesh speaking mostly and waking up being like, okay, I'm going to be a disciple today. Man, you better be right. <laughs> it's just the way I've been feeling. So, I think people would often say, you know, isn't, isn't taking sides like the source of all evil? Why are you doing that? It's a very real accusation. If I decide to take sides with Jesus, I'm like, yeah, I'm with him. The very act of taking sides, it would be very logical for our culture around us to go, you just did the, the source of all the evil stuff when someone takes a side. Right? And then I, think, and then I started thinking, oh, he better be right. Because I know, I know, I know that. <laughs> so this is the tension point, is going, is who we're deciding to enthrone worthy of it? Like for the whole thing. So at this point in the Sermon on the Mount, right before verse 11 and 12, what we're talking about today, at this point in the Sermon on the Mount, you could have been there in, at that sermon and until this point, until he got to this point, you could have seen it as a religious manual of here's a whole bunch of good advice and things to do, right? You could have been like, oh yeah, meekness. It's hard to argue with meekness. When you see meekness, like Jesus involved or not, when you see meekness in the world around you, you're like, that's a good thing. When someone doesn't use the power, that they, they, they decide not to use it for the sake of another. You're like, that's just an inherently good idea. You know, you can kind of go through the Beatitudes and go, those are all really noble, wise things to do. And it can start to take on a sort of religious tone of going, oh, so I just got to do those eight things. And that's the definition of religion is here's the rule book, here's the manual, and you do these things to climb your way up to heaven by following all the rules. And I mean, of course, we can never pull it off, but we'd like to think we can. And at this point in this Sermon on the Mount, things take a really interesting tonal shift. I don't know if you noticed it when we read it earlier, but I'll point it out to you. The third person changes to the second person. What I mean by that is those who become you. All up until now, every beatitude is, uh, blessed are those who, blessed are those who. And it kind of has this distant, I'm on a stage and we're talking about society. <laughs> those who do this will experience this and those who do this. And then all of a sudden there's this record scratch. It goes, and it, says, and it says, blessed are you. And I could imagine Jesus just like doing this and talking like this to talking like this. And he starts locking eyes with people. Blessed are you, if you. And it's like, it kind of gives me chills to think about when the super inspiring speaker all of a sudden starts staring at me. Blessed are you. And, and, and he says, he adds something else. He says, because of me. Blessed are you 
if you're persecuted because of me. He hasn't said anything about himself yet. That because of me is like a giant alarm bell. Because what he just did was going, okay, all this stuff, all of these things, all of these, all these things you wish you could do, all these things you wish you could be, this is about you and me. This is about what you think of me and what I think of you. And it just cuts through this religious distant fog. And all of a sudden, Jesus is a person again. Very interesting. So what does this mean? Any vague sense of righteousness gets real personal right here, real quick. What he's saying is the only persecution that is blessed, worth it, capital R, righteous, is that which stems from personal allegiance to me. Why? Because this whole thing was always meant to be personal. It was always meant to be between you and him. Jesus wins hearts. He doesn't win crowds. He wins hearts. And so he's trying to talk to you and I. I I made up a sentence that this is what I feel like he's saying. If you follow me, the world will push back because I'm actually in charge. But the best and only evidence of my kingship is my followers willingly enduring the persecution that comes with that allegiance. It's the only calling card. It's the only thing that actually counts is what do you think? What say you? When you were persecuted because of me, what say you? (laughs) This is not a... What do, you th- what do you objectively think about Jesus in this sort of like as a guru type figure? It's like, no, no, no. What happened when it happened to you? What happened when it costed you? Was it worth it? You and me. Oh, man. So this is how I picture it. Okay, forgive the melodrama, but this is how I imagined this playing. This is how I imagined my everyday life playing out in a allegorical way, okay? I picture a courtroom. And right now, Jesus is on trial in our world, right? Like you start enthroning him and he, th- like he, thinks, he's, he thinks he's in charge. <laughs> like he thinks he gets to define what love is, right? That's, and so here's what he's being accused of. And what I picture is like a, <laughs> I picture like a courtroom crammed full of as many people that they'd let in, screaming in anger. That's what I picture. And I'm one of them sometimes, okay? Just seething. And they're yelling this. They're yelling, he thinks he's right. (laughs) Nobody can be 100% right. Because that would mean that I'm not. And that's not allowed. He broke the rules. Nobody gets to decide what love and righteousness actually is. Nobody gets to do that. No. We choose to have our own definitions. That's what we choose. How dare he? I will be like God, knowing good and evil. Thank you very much. And if there's war, so be it. I'd rather lose a war than submit to a different authority. No, crucify him. That's the accusation. No, no, you may not be in charge. Crucify him. And the defendant is silent. The defendant says it doesn't say a word. 
Because it's impossible to fight for your own justice, right? Any words wouldn't make any sense in that scenario. In a courtroom setting, what was trying to be determined is what happened before. What did you say and what did you do and what were the implications on the people around you? Speaking up in the courtroom, nobody listens if you defend yourself. Nobody listens. The self-interest is too obvious. So he's silent. It's the weakest testimony if he was to speak up because there's no external validation. So Jesus thinks, what I said and what I did, I'm gonna let that stand. And he doesn't say a word. What I said and what I did was enough. I don't have to open my mouth right now. Like the humility and vulnerability of Jesus is just like insane sometimes. It just hits you like a ton of bricks. Going, why didn't, why didn't you just, just speak up? He doesn't speak up. And then we're called to the witness stand one by one. We're called to the witness stand one by one. And I think it has to be one by one because you can't, because it was about you and me, remember? It was about the two of you. So just one person at a time has to get called to the stand. You can't, it's not a crowd. It's not a lecture. It's one person called at a time. And I feel like if I was in that position, yeah, so a witness gets called up and the question that's asked of them or yelled at them is this. Does he get to decide what love is? Does he? Does, does he? Is it him? And the answer, it can only be answered one at a time because the answer is found in an actual relationship. The, actual, the answer is, could only be found in the experience of that person. The answer can only be found in the real lived out witness of that individual. It's the only thing that counts. And so, you know, I picture like myself, like, I got, like a, trying to be a loyal follower of Jesus. I get invited to the stand and I'm like trembling with fear because this courtroom is chaos and there's gnashing of teeth and everybody's freaking out. And knowing that whatever you say could get you dragged off and you'd be lumped in with him. You'll get dragged off with him depending on where your allegiance lies and you're trembling and you, can hard, you can't even say anything. You can't even give any words out because I'd be so afraid. And you look at the defendant sitting in front of the angry mob and he has a smile on his face. Like a knowing smile. Like a smile like that you catch from a person you love like from across a big room. It's like, I know you, you know me. That's what I picture. And then you remember that you love him too. <laughs> you remember that story. You remember that time. You remember when, you remember when he drew close to you when no one else did. You remember when you felt forgiveness in the most purest way that you've ever, and you remember when you were persecuted for it and then you felt alive because God was with you and you, and you, and you did a purposeful thing. You, Oh, that's bad. Uh, you, you remember that you have a relationship with him. You remember your friend. And your friend sitting there. You've tasted of his goodness. And a smile creeps across your face too. And you say with confidence, I'm with him. Not because you remembered his good ideas. Not because you remembered his good ideas, but because you knew him personally to be good. 
You knew him personally to be a better life leader than you. You have experience of that. You're a witness. So my friends, there's a kind of good, I think, that's about allegiance. Because right, righteousness is actually about right relationship, right? And I, I'm reminded of, of Peter when I think about this stuff. You know, when Peter was on, when Jesus was on trial, some of you know the story, uh, Peter discovered that him just agreeing with Jesus wasn't enough. And we discovered that he wasn't allied to him. And when he was accused of being one of his, he says, I'm not with him. I'm not with him. And then you fast forward, post-resurrection, and, Jesus, and Peter's reinstatement by Jesus. And what does he talk about? Jesus just says, do you love me? And Peter says, I love you. Do you love me? I love you. Do you love me? I love you. And love, the allegiance was formed. Never again did Peter walk away. He died a martyr's death. <laughs> and right in that moment, he discovered that he was allied to Christ because he loved him. And he couldn't abandon him ever again. So when I think about our addictions and I think about the things that we turn to, I think it's more about loyalty and devotion and love than I think we think it is. Every decision you make with your life, whether you're by yourself or whether you're in public, is a declaration of who you love most. It's a witness stand moment. It's a who do you think is best who do you think gets to say? That's what we're doing. I think about, uh, man, if, if you're addicted, I feel like I want to say, stop trying to be good. Live your life as if it's defending Jesus' claims. Like, is what he said true? That's, that's the decisions we're making as we're working out who we're worshiping in every given moment. It's a witness stand moment. I, uh, when we were at the GO conference, I forget how this came up, but we ended up discussing in our team about how persecuted nations, it's very rare to have a persecuted nation where you can't, they won't even let you believe something. Because how do you even police that, right? Like how do you police somebody's internal beliefs? It's pretty hard for any government to really pull off. Uh, so it's like, yeah, you can believe whatever you want, right? But you can't preach. That's the thing. You can't preach. Whatever you want to do to make yourself be a good person, you go for it. You can be a good, whatever helps you be a good citizen, you go for it. But don't you preach. Don't you preach. Because what that does is it changes the game from a internal religious belief system to an offensive kingdom that is elevating a new king that that government, I guess, has an issue with for all kinds of understandable reasons. You can't preach. You can't say he's king. You can't say he's in charge. And I would say that that persecution is here. <laughs> like, it's not, just a, it's not just a thing that... Okay, so maybe the government isn't saying you can't, but I feel the pressure to go, you can believe whatever you want, but you start preaching, that has implications for me. And uh, I, you know, being good doesn't get you persecuted, but defending Jesus will. And here's what I think is so great. As we're on, you know, 
as we're on the, the offense for what Jesus is saying, and I'm not saying we beat people over the heads and are rude. I, I hate, it's hard to not communicate that at the same time. But as we're on the offense for Jesus, it's the very thing that sets us free at the same time. Because we're marching forward going, you're king. Oh, he just kept being good. He kept being a better leader than me. He kept being a better source of everything. And then you take another step forward and he just kept being good again. And then there was maybe some repercussions to people not agreeing with that. But you're like, I found something that actually works. I have found the reference point for humanity for what goodness is. I have the answer and it's a person and he knows me and he lets me speak about, he lets me defend him. <laughs> he lets me defend him with the way I live my life. And so yes, I will tell you about his goodness as much as you'll let me and is kind and loving to you. Yes, I will tell you about it because if he was in charge, like he's in charge of me, there would actually be peace. If he was given rule and reign of each heart, there's, that's the actual solution for peace on earth. So yes, I will tell you about him. And then what's interesting is that when we do that, the character of Jesus gets put on trial and he wants to be. He's sitting there on purpose in silence. That's his plan. He put himself on trial in front of the world. <laughs> like that is so humble. Everybody's screaming and spitting at him. Because there was only one way for hearts to be conquered. There was only one way for, not, for him not to conquer a mob, but for him to conquer each heart. And it was for him to reveal himself personally. What say you when you're persecuted for the righteousness I told you to live out? What say you? What happened? Oh, it was, it was life. I wasn't addicted, I was free. Oh my goodness, you're a king and you're powerful and you're in charge. I'm with him. Come what may, I'm with him. So, last thing I'll say. In verse 12, he says, says, uh, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know why they persecuted the prophets who were actually speaking on God's behalf? Is because they were calling Israel, in most cases, they were calling Israel back to faithfulness. They were calling Israel back to their first love. They're like, guys, remember Sinai? Like, you remember how he rescued you on eagle's wings and saved you from slavery and wanted to make you into a holy priesthood that was his very own treasured possession. Remember that? Remember how he wanted to be your God and lead you into life and freedom and wholeness and you were gonna be the special nation that was basically God's bride and like most cherished. You remember that? You should be faithful to your husband. (laughs) That was what the prophets were saying. Be faithful, be faithful. And they got killed. They got persecuted because there is a cost to faithfulness to Christ. It costs you your own kingdom. And what you gain is a loving relationship with the person you were designed to be loved and led by, and it changes you. And so Jesus is saying, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Great is the relationship you'll experience. Great is the freedom you'll have. 
when you call people to faithfulness and you're faithful yourself to me. So I think he's been very faithful. And when I picture him sitting in the front row of a courtroom and everybody's yelling, he's going, I'm gonna let my work, it's on the cross, I'm gonna let my work speak for itself. And he's put on trial and then we get a chance to with our lives and with our voices and with our fingers, we point at him and go, do you have anything better? Do you have anything better? Because <laughs> I don't have anything better. Is it you? It's not me. And there's only two options, or I guess three. You, me, or him. <laughs> there's been times when humanity just worshipped humans. Doesn't work. More common now, we worship ourselves. Not working. There's another option, and it's Jesus Christ. And he has displayed his character And I can't think of anybody worth trusting more than him, devoid of self-interest. Devoid of self-interest. We need a reference point. We need a reference point or we're gonna rip each other apart and we have a reference point that is the perfection of love. That is, wow. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to wonder what brings peace and reconciliation and freedom. You don't have to wonder that. Congratulations, you showed up at church today, you got lucky, and you heard that you no longer have to guess about where freedom and peace come from. They come from the enthronement of Christ, and he does it. And as one of the witnesses, I'm saying I'm with him, and I have a testimony of his goodness leading me into right relationship and freedom from the things that kill me. What say you? What say you? Maybe you haven't had an experience of that yet. That's fine. Welcome. That's where the journey begins. Is you go, is he really like that? You mean the guy who's in charge died for me? You mean the guy who's in charge and could have had a power trip, emptied himself of divinity, and paid the cost of my sin for me? Okay. And then you start to go, oh, okay, so he wants to lead me every day. Oh, that makes sense. (laughs) That makes sense. Then it hurts some days, and you forget about him some days, and you're unfaithful some days, and you get addicted to things, and yeah. And then he goes, hey, (laughs) you could be faithful to me again. I was designed to love and lead you. So maybe maybe that's the first, maybe you haven't heard this before. That's great. Now you know. There's a reference point for humanity. His name is Jesus. Or maybe you're feeling like I've been feeling a little bit, or you've known this stuff for a long time, and it's starting to feel a little binary in terms of the options. You got two. And uh, you're going, oh, if I keep doing this, if I keep doing this, I am not on the side of the crowd. Oh, if I keep making these decisions, and I keep being loyal and faithful to him, I... Well, I will suffer. I will suffer alongside him. And then I feel like for, for those of you that are resonating with that, just, just for me, this is what helped me this week as I was preparing. Just picture him in the front of the courtroom and he's smiling at you. And he's going, I got you. We got this. It's you and me. It's you and me. I'm in charge. I'm going to end it. I'm going to win. Just stay with me. And that's, I don't know. I don't have a better plan. <laughs> So I'm gonna invite the worship team back up. Father, I I thank you 
that you call us individually, that you, that you, you look at us in the eyes and you say, blessed are you when you're persecuted because of me. And Lord, I'm so guilty of saying, oh, I, I doubt you so much. And I say, you better be right, Lord. And then I remember what you did and what you said. And I don't have a case against you. <laughs> so Father, thank you. We are grateful that you intervened so miraculously in this world that you gave us a way out. You gave us a way out of us ripping each other to shreds with our own sense of justice and fairness and peace. And you said, just look at me. Let me pay for it and let me lead you. Let me lead you into relationship. Let me lead you into freedom. And so God, we say today, we are gonna let you lead us. Lead us into freedom. Lead us into right relationship. Lead us into your presence. Lead us into wholeness. Lead us into things that we could never do. We could never do on our own. You are worthy. You deserve the praise. To you be the glory. Now I understand why all the church for centuries has been, she's been saying, holy, holy, holy. You're worthy of it all. Oh Lord, I'm so guilty of doubting that. But Father, you've done everything we need. And you said everything you've needed to say. And you sit here in silence before us. And you ask us so humbly and vulnerably, oh, what say you? And so Father, we say, we're with you. We're with you. We choose you. I would say to whatever end, but we already know the end. We need you to be in charge of our lives. Stir in us, Lord, as we worship you and give you praise for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.